Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Summertime allows many of us to enjoy swimming, boating, and fishing. Thanks to the federal Clean Water Act, many rivers, streams, and lakes allow us to do all these activities safely. But this wasn't always the case. Coming up, we'll learn how a river fire in Cleveland, Ohio, helped encourage the passage of federal laws to clean up and control water pollution. Now first, how many of you spend time on the Farmington River? Residents along the 47-mile waterway in northwest Connecticut were alarmed to learn about a chemical spill in June that made it into the river. That spill involved the chemical known as PFAS, short for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, and now residents and officials are focusing on the safety of drinking water in Connecticut. Later, we'll hear how other New England states have passed laws limiting the use of these chemicals, once found in products that contain Teflon, like nonstick pans. But to learn more about that Connecticut incident, joining me now in studio is Greg, La- Greg Ladke, environment reporter for the Hartford Current. Greg, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you. So uh, take us back to June 8th when uh, this spill happened that allowed this chemical uh, to get into the Farmington River. What happened? Well, there was a... Uh, Hangar, a privately operated hangar at Bradley International Airport. Uh, it was run by Signature Flight, uh, a big uh, global company servicing aircraft. Um, there was a malfunction in their fire suppression system, and a uh, tens of thousands of gallons of water mixed with this PFAS foam, firefighting foam, um, deluged the hangar, as it's supposed to do in a fire. But there was no fire. The big problem was that it wasn't contained in the hangar, got into the sewer system, ran down uh, to an MDC uh, sewage treatment plant, which is on the Farmington River. That plant, uh, like most sewage plants in Connecticut, is not designed to filter this stuff out. And so it went into the plant and right through out a pipe into the Farmington River. There's estimates that something like 20,000 gallons of this foam water mixture may have gotten into the river. So this happened on a weekend. How quickly were residents around that area alerted that this spill had happened? That is a big issue uh, for people in Windsor. Some people said that they didn't learn about it uh, for a week. Um, There were press releases put out uh, by the state uh, warning people not to Uh, initially not to go into the water for swimming or boating. Uh, There was a still there that was taken off after a while, but there is still a a do not eat fish caught in the river because they still haven't tested uh, enough fish and other marine life to find out if uh, this contaminant is is dangerous in terms of the fish 
You've been an environment reporter for some time. Uh, we're talking about PFAS today because it's something that a lot of us uh, may not have really focused on um, because of where we live. We're going to find out uh, later on in the show how other states like New Hampshire, um, residents there have really been actively pushing uh, lawmakers, both federally and locally, uh, to contain uh, this chemical, especially from uh, waterways. Um, but when we hear about PFAS, what do we know about this chemical and what it can do to, to us? It's a, a, these compounds, and there are a lot of them, there's more than 4,000 different chemical compounds that are collectively known as PFAS. Um, and the studies are, have linked them to different types of cancer, kidney disease, uh, thyroid problems, uh, reproductive problems, um, obesity, uh, uh, damage to the immune system, uh, it may make uh, vaccinations less uh, effective. So there's a whole long range and of pretty scary things that they think these chemicals uh, can do to the human body. And the other big problem with this is that they are long-lasting in the environment. They're very difficult to remove once they get into the environment. And their nickname is the forever chemical. Uh, so the Another big problem is that there hasn't been enough research done to find out really what kinds of effects these can have on the environment, on marine life, on animals, and, and humans. Uh, you mentioned uh, how many tens of thousands of gallons flowed into uh, the Farmington River that officials um, have been working to clean up. Wh what do we know now about uh, this uh, chemical, this firefighting foam? How much of it is still in the Farmington? Uh, they, they're doing more testing as they go along. It, the, um, the concentrations were very, very high immediately after the spill, right near where the, it entered the river. It was uh, much higher than drinking water levels were allowed uh, farther down the river. It's still there, um, but they're now this week doing more testing, and we should have a better idea in a few days after the results come back. Here's another problem with the whole deal. Apparently, there's only a few labs in the country that do tests for this kind of uh, chemical pollution. So it, it takes a while. It ta you have to wait your turn. So uh, if uh, we hear that a local officials, specifically in Windsor, testing uh, wells, uh, that could take some time to find out um, that there's PFAS levels that are higher than what the EPA standard is? It's, that's a possibility. Um, the, the, uh, when the this foam mixture ran through the sewage system. It apparently bubbled up on a, a, a road through manhole covers um, in this neighborhood in Windsor called Rainbow Road neighborhood. Um, and that's, there are something like 14 to 20 private wells in that area that, that they expect to test for this. Uh, it's a scary situation. And it has been scary in states, as you said, across the country. Um, where this has become a much bigger issue much earlier than in Connecticut. Um, they, the state did test uh, a few years ago most of the major drinking water systems in Connecticut, the public water systems, and did not find very high levels of PFAS. And I think that uh, that sort of gave the state officials uh, uh, maybe a false confidence that we didn't have huge problems here. Um, in fact, they said they didn't think it was a widespread issue in Connecticut in an re official report. Then there's a well in Greenwich that was found to have 
uh, very high levels of this stuff. And drinking from that well was banned. Another well in Willimantic was found to have uh, PFAS co contamination. Um, and the, the su supposition is that the Greenwich well was polluted from firefighting from, from Westchester Airport and that the Willimantic well was polluted from firefighting foam that came from a fire training facility that was next door to this property or very close to it. So there, there are all kinds of possibilities here. And that, that's what I think is wor most worrisome, that it's not just contained to the Farmington River or a particular neighborhood in, in Windsor. It's, it's a potential statewide issue. Fred Lackey is environment reporter for the Hartford Current. You can join our conversation, especially if you live in the town of Windsor. Again, we're talking about PFAS today because of a uh, toxic chemical spill that uh, that started at uh, Bradley Airport back uh, June 8th. Um, now uh, state officials uh, are looking at uh, how groundwater um, and whether there is PFAS levels that exceed the EPA level. Um, but if you live in the town of Windsor, you can join us, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, a Windsor resident is joining us now by phone, Charles Button, who lives right by uh, the Farmington River. Charles, welcome to where we live. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be part of the conversation. So, Charles, you live right by the Farmington. This is a river that was uh, recently designated wild and scenic. Uh, lots of people enjoy recreating on the river. Um, before this spill happened, was PFAST on your radar? Uh, it was on my radar, but not uh, as bright as it is now. <laughs> uh, not, not, not specifically for the Farmington itself, but just as a general topic um, to be discussed in the classes I teach at Central Connecticut. So uh, you live right along the river. When this spill happened June 8th, how soon before you and your family found out about it? Well, as you were just discussing um, with your guest, um, we really weren't notified by anybody from the top levels down. And what I mean by that is there was never a knock on the door, never a phone call, never anything in the a notice in the mail or posted on our doors, as all of the neighbors that I've spoke to in Windsor report the same. Uh, nobody reached out to the citizens here to let us know that this had happened. Mm. Uh, the only way we found out about it was on the Internet by chance on Facebook. And then um, your guests doing great reporting on it. Uh, but to this day, uh, is the best of my knowledge, other than the people showing up at the public forums or showing up when, like when Blumenthal spoke the other day and expressing concerns, I still don't know that anyone, perhaps maybe hopefully by now, they're talking to people that have wells. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not hearing any, you know, personal reach out from any official, from the federal down to the local. Has this changed, uh, you know, how you live uh, each and every day, Charles, by the river, knowing that this uh, this chemical uh, is in uh, the Farmington and then concerns also about how it's getting into drinking water? Yeah, well, I, I had known it was always a potential to get there simply because, you know, we do have the airport and I'm well aware of it being used there. And I know we also have a few firefighting stations that are located somewhat near the river here in Windsor. And uh, so I knew there was always the potential. But, you know, be, and I should not be naive like this, considering I'm an environmental scientist and I should know better. But you, you kind of, like, I think I heard the word uh, false security. 
uh, presented. We we kind of have that same thing. You kind of assume something like an airport is not going to have its drainage go into the wastewater treatment plant systems with chemicals mm-hmm. uh, because they're not set up to treat those. So I- the fact that that isn't the case is very mm-hmm. uh, disconcerting, especially for us that, like myself here, I, I I'm a I participate in the river a lot. Uh, personally, for pleasure and recreation, you know, I love to kayak. I love to fish. I love. I like to go swim in the water. Historically, in the past, with my kids, uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, I Gre- just, it, uh, it's very disconcerting for everybody involved. Uh, Greg Gladkey is with me, environment reporter for the Hartford Current. Is this what you're hearing from other residents along the Farmington uh, River, Greg? People, despite um, hearing. Uh, um, assurances from state officials uh, that, you know, it's not, unless you drink the water, you may, you know, you're not going to be endangered. That's not good enough for people when they hear that. Yeah, they, I've heard that from a number of people that I've spoken to along the river. Uh, One, uh, I think uh, State Representative Jane Garibay, um, who represents the area, uh, said when she first heard, oh, it's okay to go in the river, just don't, just uh, don't eat the fish. He said, well, I wonder if the guy who told you that is, uh, uh, would allow his two-year-old grandson to go in the river. And I think that's the attitude is this. People are worried. They don't really know how safe it may be. And they're still ticked off that they didn't get notified like uh, mm-hmm. Charles Button did. Uh, what have you heard from the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, those officials, also public health officials, in terms of, of what's going to be done now, uh, now that they know that this bill happened? Uh, I know Governor, Governor Lamont has put up a, a task force to look into safety of drinking water around the state. I mean, what are some of the steps moving forward, Greg? Uh, there's going to be more testing of the uh, water in the Farmington. There's going to be these testing of wells along that in that particular neighborhood where there may have been uh, some leakage from the sewage system. Um, there's going to be uh, testing of major rivers and lakes across Connecticut this summer. The state has uh, reached an agreement with uh, uh, experts at the University of Rhode Island, which is apparently doing an ongoing study of PFAS contamination. And they're going to be testing... Um, surface water all across the state. Uh, There are also uh, plans to check uh, groundwater contamination around the half dozen or more firefighting uh, training schools in Connecticut. Um, The uh, Department of Defense has allocated more than $60,000, or maybe that's a a lowball figure, uh, for testing at the sub-base in Groton. Uh, The National Guard, Air Force, I mean, National Guard at uh, Bradley Airport is also going to uh, be checking spots there for groundwater uh, contamination. So it's, uh, it is a statewide issue that's uh, growing, not getting, not getting less. And I think it's now on everybody's radar, finally. Uh, I have to admit that it wasn't high on my radar before mm. the Farmington River spill. Uh, we got a good question from uh, Doreen on Facebook who wonders, what about firefighters who are exposed or anyone exposed to this uh, this foam in training situations? Should they be concerned? They are concerned. Uh, firefighters Association um, this year was solidly behind a piece of legislation that was going to restrict the use of PFAS foam during firefighting training. 
you have to understand that this substance has been uh, uh, required by the FAA for airports, uh, wherever fuel or chemicals are, uh, are potential spills. It's very effective in stopping those or suppressing those kinds of fires. Um, but uh, the bill that that was proposed during the legislative session didn't make it through. And it may have been because it, there was a $65,000 research price tag attached to it. Mm. And we're talking about a state budget of $20 billion plus dollars. So We'll be talking more with uh, one of the lawmakers who was pushing for that bill uh, to be passed this session. Uh, Representative Jonathan Steinberg is going to join us uh, right after the break here on Where We Live. I want to thank Charles Button for calling in, who is a town of Windsor resident. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266, as we talk about PFAS. Again, uh, this class of chemicals that's found uh, all around us. Uh, the focus now because of a chemical spill going into the Farmington River in June. But how how safe is our drinking water? Do you feel uh, comfortable uh, with uh, the standards in place here in Connecticut? You can join us, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning more about PFAS, a group of man-made chemicals that last in the environment. They've been linked to serious health risks like cancer or kidney and liver issues. Now, PFAS used to be widely found in products like nonstick pans and stain-resistant carpets. Now, PFAS is on the minds of Connecticut residents and officials now after firefighting foam that includes this chemical leaked into the Farmington River in June. In studio with me is Greg Ladke, who's been covering the spill and the state's response. He's an environment reporter with the Hartford Current. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about how other uh, New England states have been uh, uh, active, um, talking about uh, PFAS and how activists have been pushing lawmakers to do more uh, to make sure that their water is safe. But I wanted to speak uh, quickly now uh, with State Representative Jonathan Steinberg. He represents Westport, also co-chair of the Public Health Committee in the Connecticut General Assembly. Representative Steinberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so PFAS on all of our minds, uh, but this is something that was on uh, your radar, so to speak, uh, in the sense that you even uh, helped uh, try to push a bill through the legislative session regarding uh, research into PFAS. Um, tell us about that. Yes. Uh, to be clear, it's only relatively new on most of our radar screens, and I think that's true in a lot of states. Uh, it was brought to us uh, by Ann Hulick at Clean Water Action. We learned a lot this session. We did our research. We originally started with a much more uh, a broader build to look at not only PFAS and the use of firefighting foam, but also in consumer products. And I don't know, Mr. Button mentioned it earlier, but uh, PFAS are a broad uh, range of chemicals with similar molecular structures, but they are, they are different and they have different impacts. Uh, we figured out that, that doing the consumer products piece was a uh, more than we could handle, and then we focused exclusively on the firefighting foam for training purposes. And as he mentioned, it is the most effective way to deal with certain types of fires. And there isn't, hasn't been a, an approved effective alternative, even though there are some alternatives out there. This bill passed unanimously out of our committee, but it was one of three bills that had to go to the Appropriations Committee because it had a fiscal note. For those who are not familiar, if it's going to cost the state money to implement, that's something that the Appropriations Committee has to approve, 
and C is actually in the budget. Two of our three bills were approved through appropriations. This one was not uh, for a seemingly modest amount of $65,000, $75,000, but it's reflective of the state of the state. We've had years and years of budget cuts, and we've constrained our agencies, the Department of Public Health, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, to the point where we're making it very hard to protect the public health, to protect the environment, because we don't have the resources available. And yet, um, with the announcement by Governor Lamont that there's now an interagency task force looking specifically at PFAS, again, after this uh, spill happened in the Farmington River, uh, Governor Lamont even saying that uh, with this task force, we want to get ahead of the curve. Uh, It sounds like that's uh, too little too late, Representative Steinberg. Well, I I can't say with certainty that even if we had passed the legislation, it would have necessarily prevented the accident that occurred, but it would have been a step in the right direction. Um, You know, again, this is something which we would have hoped would have been dealt with much more aggressively at the federal level, but there's been no no indication in recent years there's any interest in uh, evaluating, let alone constraining a lot of the chemicals we put into our food chain and into the environment. There are literally tens of thousands of chemicals that have not been tested to the degree that we know that PFAS are dangerous. Uh, And that's really the the tragedy of this all. We knew it was a problem, and yet we have not had the resolve, or in the case of Connecticut, the resources to necessarily protect the public. I mentioned, Representative Steinberg, you're co-chair of the Public Health Committee. So tell us, uh, moving forward, what you want to see happen in terms of of, addressing uh, PFAS, as well as uh, maybe the legislator taking another look at this uh, come the next session? I'm confident we'll, we'll raise another bill. It, it may be substantially similar to what we passed last year, and we're going to have to do a better job of convincing appropriations that it's worthy of a fairly modest uh, funding investment. I think that will happen, obviously, when you have an, an incident like this that really shines a spotlight on the problem. Everybody gets on board, and the, you know the governor and the commissioners of DEEP and DPH are also taking the lead. Uh, I'm pretty confident we can do that. But I won't pretend necessarily that resolves the the problem, that it's a complete solution. And I think, to your point, we're going to have to continue to explore further about some of the other PFAS variants, what kind of products they're in, uh, what, if anything, one state, a small state like Connecticut, can do about it. And as you mentioned, other states are looking at this as well. But potentially, uh, if enough states, particularly contiguous states, uh, all pass similar legislation, we have the critical mass that might force some of these chemical users to actually change their ways. Before I let you go, Representative Steinberg, uh, I know that you represent Westport and you are a representative in the Connecticut General Assembly, but when you hear about after this spill happening in Windsor that residents uh, didn't feel like they were properly notified, um, should there also be um, some attention drawn to when this kind of spill happens, that there should be a a, a better way to let uh, the community know that this has happened? Uh, Again, uh, uh, Greg Ladke had mentioned you know, some, some signs were put up by the river, but you know, not ones that are very noticeable. Uh, we heard from residents who said that they really didn't know about it until days later. Yeah, I have to admit I was surprised by that. Uh, maybe I've been resting under the assumption that those protocols for communication exist. Um, I would have thought both Deep and DPH had existing uh, process in place for, for a, a calamity of, of this magnitude. Uh, obviously, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and assure that uh, we have effective, comprehensive communication for an event like this. Um, I think that's going to happen. I think that's easily one of the 
one of the uh, deliverables from the task force the governor's put, putting together that we uh, can be highly confident that should something happen that the public is aware and also m- the choices they need to make are made eminently clear so there can be no confusion and nobody can be harmed. Thank you, uh, State Representative Jonathan Steinberg, who represents Westport, uh, for joining us here in where we live. Greg Gladke from the Hartford Current. Yeah, <clears throat> the, uh, one of the things that uh, the representative was talking about, these budget cuts that have gone on year after year, have really slashed the staffs of state agencies like um, uh, environment, environmental protection uh, and public health to a degree. Um, it may be that, uh, that their staff shortages played a role in the fact that they weren't communicating that well. Uh, you can join us here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266, as we talk and learn more about PFAS again, a class of man-made chemicals that have been linked to serious health risks uh, found in uh, water supplies, found all around us uh, in the environment. Um, you can join us again on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We wanted to know more about how residents uh, in other states have pushed policymakers to better control how much PFAS is allowed in their water. Uh, they include New Hampshire. Hampshire residents, where my next guest has reported extensively on PFAS. Annie Ropeek is joining us from New Hampshire Public Radio. She's an environmental reporter. Annie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're hearing that in Connecticut, a lot of eyes are opening now to uh, the dangers of PFAS. But in New Hampshire, this is something that uh, community members have been talking about for some time. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. So like Representative Steinberg, Steinberg rather said, uh, This is an issue that is pretty new to everyone, but it has first emerged in New Hampshire really as far back as 2014 and 2016. Those are when two big contamination hotspots kind of emerged. So we have a factory in the Manchester area that makes performance plastics that's using PFAS chemicals in its manufacturing process. The company is called St. Gobain, and they're actually also responsible for some contamination uh, in Vermont. And then they came down to New Hampshire and emitted these chemicals into the air and contaminated hundreds of private drinking water wells and some public water supplies in that area. So the state has been dealing with that uh, for years now. And um, between that and then we also have a military base near Portsmouth called Pease Tradeport, or a former military base rather, uh, where the contamination from PFAS there is really due to these firefighting foams that were used uh, like they were in Connecticut. And so those two hotspots have been ongoing for a few years now, and the state has really sort of learned uh, as it goes about what these chemicals are, how to clean them up, and and all the while the technology has been evolving too and the public consciousness of it. Um, and so those things have really precipitated uh, some pretty aggressive action on the part of the state. New Hampshire is really one of a, a small number of states across the country that are are really on the cutting edge of trying to regulate PFAS and um, just trying to clean it up and understand it and make it a priority. Um, and so I would say New Hampshire is probably the New England state that has done the most on this, although we're also starting to see Maine and Mass and Vermont um, really take up the charge as well. Annie, when we talk about um, the safe levels or standards, so to speak, what does the the EPA say is safe? And, you know, when we look at states like New Hampshire, you know, what are community members wanting or how have laws been changed to maybe set those standards even lower than what the EPA says is safe? 
Yeah, so this has really been the central question of the debate here for a long time. The EPA, so there's no binding federal regulations around these chemicals, although the EPA does sort of have those in the works now. It's going to be years before those uh, are actually in effect. And, and there is debate around what the numbers should be. So right now, the EPA has what's called a health advisory. It's non-binding. Um, it just is sort of advice to states. And several states, including New Hampshire, made that into law as soon as it came out in 2016. And that number says... Uh, for two PFAS chemicals, sort of the most common and most studied ones, including the ingredients in Teflon and firefighting foam, which are PFOA and PFOS, uh, the number uh, should be the, the exposure, lifetime exposure should be no greater than 70 parts per trillion. So uh, we often hear people in the PFAS world say, you know, parts per trillion, it's so small, but you know, I think that is it can be kind of misleading. I mean, just because these are really small numbers doesn't mean that science doesn't show these chemicals can be dangerous at those really low, low amounts. You know, tiny, tiny little particles um, out of out of trillions uh, can potentially cause health effects. So the EPA says 70. Uh, but then we had last year a study from the Centers for Disease Control that said something different. So the Centers for Disease Control says you might start to see health risks at levels more around the 7 or 10 or 15 parts per trillion level, depending on what chemical we're talking about. So it's a fraction of the EPA's recommendation. And the CDC is very careful to say, you know, these are just the screening levels where, like, if we see numbers around these levels, that is the minimum level at which we would go in and start to look for more problems. It's not necessarily the level at which you're guaranteed to get sick, far from it. But advocates really picked those up and said, why is the EPA going with this more lenient standard when it, federal researchers in another agency are saying it should be far lower or could potentially be um, more protective for it to be far lower? Uh, and so states like New Hampshire have been grappling with that range. And New Hampshire is one of a few states that is trying to write its own drinking water regulations on PFAS. Um, and originally, when the proposals came out uh, this past January, the numbers were a little bit closer to the EPA end of the spectrum. They were, you know, more or less in line with that more lenient standard. There was a ton of public pushback um, from advocates in places like Portsmouth and Merrimack, New Hampshire, where they're living with contamination. And now the new proposals that just came out a few weeks ago and are up for uh, legislative approval in a couple of weeks are far, far lower. They're right around the CDC level. Uh, we're proposing 12 parts per trillion for PFOA. That's down from the initial proposal of 38 and 15 for PFOS, which is down from 70. And we've got two other uh, chemicals in our list as well. And there are other states that are down around those levels too. In fact, like most states that are trying to write their own rules are opting for lower numbers once they actually take the step to to study the science themselves and try to do something um, from scratch. Uh, Greg Ladke's environment reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, Connecticut follows the EPA standard? It does to a certain degree. Uh, it, it uses that 70 parts per trillion uh, number, but it applies it to not only the two chemical compounds that the EPA um, says should be uh, part of it, but f three other um, PFAS chemicals. So it's uh, uh, the state says our our standard is tougher than uh, than the EPA's, but it's nowhere near as stringent as the CDC recommendation. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Anne's calling. Uh, she's actually the Connecticut Director of Clean Water Act. Uh, Anne, go ahead. Hi, Lucy. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. And 
first, I just wanted to thank you so much for covering this issue. Um, it's it's been one that, as other um, folks have noted, has not received a lot of media attention in Connecticut, despite the fact that it's a national. It really is a national crisis. And um, so I just wanted to thank you and um, Greg Latke, who's been doing an excellent job covering this since the spill. Our group at Clean Water Action um, has been involved in a national coalition working on PFAS for the last couple of years now. So we've been fortunate to um, be working with experts all over the country who are dealing with this problem and have learned a lot from what other states are doing. And as your previous guest mentioned, New Hampshire and Vermont, uh, New York and New Jersey are, are really moving forward with some much stricter health policies. So I just wanted to comment that our group is um, Clean Water Action will continue to um, be strongly working on this issue and advocating for um, health protective policies. Um, we're pleased to see Governor Lamont taking action. I'm pleased to continue to work with Representative Steinberg, who was a leader on this issue. Um, but we really need to see um, not just study, we need to um, make sure that we are enacting comprehensive policies that include obviously restriction of this firefighting foam. There is fluorine-free foam available that is um, equally as effective. Um, there, we need to set strict drinking water standards, as your other guests and Greg mentioned. Um, that, that will not happen at the federal level anytime soon, so states need to step up. And we need to make sure that we are reducing other sources of exposure, particularly food packaging, mm. which is a major source of contamination of our food and um, is a, a major source of how we get um, PFAS chemicals in our bodies. Well, Anne, thank you for giving us a call. I just wanted to um, go back to um, our guest, uh, Annie Ropeek, who's been uh, covering PFAS in New Hampshire. She's an environment reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Uh, we heard Anne, who's the Connecticut Director of Clean Water Act, talk about alternatives. So let's, let's, and I also heard this from Representative Steinberg, because we're focusing in on this uh, firefighting foam that spilled into the, the Farmington River. What do we know about the alternatives and how safe are they? Yeah, so it's a great question. There are alternatives. There's, uh, in particular, this class called Gen X chemicals, which are sort of the successors to PFAS in the industrial context. Uh, if PFAS chemicals are like considered long chain molecules, so that's part of why they're potentially toxic, is they're just really complicated molecules, and that's why they're hard to, to treat for. So Gen X are shorter chain versions of those same compounds, and uh, are are thought to be less persistent in the environment. Um, and, and again, are, are completely unregulated at this point. Um, and there are some concerns that those may have similar health effects. So, you know, if PFAS is still an emerging contaminant, then Gen X is even farther behind on that process. But we've already seen some litigation in states like North Carolina around Gen X contamination near manufacturing facilities there. So uh, I guess the short answer is there aren't clear alternatives to specifically what PFAS chemicals do uh, because they're synthetic. I mean, it's not a natural process. And so I've heard a lot of advocates say, well, the alternative is you use cast iron pans and you, you know, stop wearing Gore-Tex, you stop using stain-resistant carpeting. And it's important to note that that the original class of PFAS chemicals that we're talking about that are in your firefighting foam 
are no longer used in American manufacturing. The EPA got the big manufacturers to agree to to phase those out uh, in the mid-2000s. But there are still plenty of products in circulation that are older that contain the chemicals. It can still be used overseas and imported, potentially. And uh, particularly on the firefighting foam issue, you know, these are chemicals that are stored up in tanks like you had at your airport and uh, or that are in the sprinkler systems or or just, you know, that kind of are stockpiled. And um, some litigation has shown that the firefighting foam manufacturers allegedly kind of went out of their way not to tell people to stop using those stockpiles when the chemicals were being phased out. And so that's why you're still seeing these sort of legacy, quote unquote, PFAS contaminants uh, causing contamination in those firefighting foams, even though they're no longer necessarily manufacturing them um, because they're older foams that are still around and no one's thought to get rid of them. So that's some of what this legislation we're hearing about is seeking to do. And there's similar action at the federal level that's actually kind of caught up in the big defense spending bill that President Trump is threatening to veto in part because of these provisions that would tell military installations to uh, try to use less PFAS and to kind of take action around that. Um, but but that's a it's a big problem. And so uh, alternatives wise, there's no clear answer, and it's just one of a million unanswered questions that we're all trying to focus on at the same time as we talk about science and health effects and levels, and, and cost in particular is a big unanswered question as well. Greg Ladke. Yeah, one of the things that uh, the state is now trying to do is to, uh, in Connecticut is to figure out how much of this firefighting phone is, is actually stored around the state. We have something over 300 different fire departments. Um, they do know that this uh, firefighting PFAS foam is stored in six different trailers that the state positioned around the state after 9-11 uh, to, to fight major fires or major uh, catastrophes. Um, and so no one really knows how much of this stuff is, is in Connecticut right now. Well, we hope to revisit uh, this topic again here on Where We Live. I want to thank Greg Gladke, who's an environment reporter with the Hartford Current. We know that you're on the PFAS beat. We thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Also, Annie Ropeek, who's been reporting on PFAS uh, for New Hampshire Public Radio. Annie, thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, activists continue to raise concerns over the Trump administration's rollbacks of some regulations that target the Federal Clean Water Act. After the break, we're going to learn about what was going on in Cleveland, Ohio, and other cities in the 50s and 60s that led to the passage of the law protecting our nation's waterways. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Federal Clean Water Act in 1972 helped clean up and regulate pollution. Now, many point to a river fire in Cleveland, Ohio, as the catalyst to the passage of the Clean Water Act. My next guest is a historian who wrote the book, Where the River Burned, Carl Stokes and the Struggle to Save Cleveland. He's going to fill in some of the details of that era. Uh, David Stradling, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. It's good to be here. So I understand there's a, a myth that surrounds uh, this fire that happened in 69 on the Cuyahoga River. Uh, you were going to focus uh, your book on that. Um, but let's talk more about uh, what you learned about uh, this story and how uh, a lot of people had the facts wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, this, our research really began with my brother, Richard Stradling, who helped me uh, write the book. Uh, he's a journalist and was uh, studying the journalistic response to the Cuyahoga Fire of 1969. 
uh, and then discovered that there were many, many more fires that had happened in Cleveland over the years, um, at least a dozen others uh, that made the newspapers, and we suspect that many other fires didn't make the newspapers starting in the late 19th century. So uh, what, what we really discovered is that um, this was a city that mostly thought of its burning river as problematic for economic reasons. Uh, it was very um, dangerous, obviously, to have a flammable waterway that ran through the middle of your industrial zone. There was oil refining, chemical manufacturers, and, and of course, the big steel mills in, in Cleveland. Um, and so really all of the coverage, including the uh, immediate coverage after the 1969 fire, really focused on the economic uh, problems of, of having a, a, such a polluted waterway. But what really um, got us going with the book was discovering the role of Carl Stokes in the last of the fires in the 1969 fire. He was the first African-American mayor of any large uh, American city, and <clears throat> it was his activism around um, solving the urban crisis while simultaneously solving the environmental crisis that really caught our attention. Mm. Uh, this was seen as an iconic uh, fire. Again, many point to this as being the catalyst of the Clean Water Act. Uh, but uh, the, even the picture that was used uh, to uh, uh, show what this fire looked like wasn't even accurate. That's right. You know, uh, there hadn't been very much uh, national coverage of the 69 fire for um, uh, almost two months after the fire took place. The New York Times didn't run a story on it. The Washington Post didn't run a time, uh, story on it. Uh, even other uh, regional papers in Ohio didn't run a story on the fire. But in uh, August of 1969, Time magazine ran a one-page piece uh, about uh, polluted waterways in American cities. And it ran a photograph of the fire in on the Cuyahoga um, while describing the fire that happened uh, that June. Uh, but the photograph was actually from 1952, a much worse, larger, lo much larger fire that was terribly damaging to uh, a tugboat company. Uh, and it's a very dramatic photograph of uh, the, uh, one of the boats kind of caught in an oil slick that's on fire and firefighters training water on it from uh, the Jefferson Avenue Bridge. Um, so readers, I think, logically concluded that this was a photograph of... Um, a river that would that had finally gotten so polluted that it you know, burst into flames, and and that was really the impression I think that Time Magazine really wanted readers to take, um, is that we had reached this crisis point, and you can see it in that image. There was no mention of the fact that the Cuyahoga had caught in fire uh, many times before. And lots of other uh, rivers that were dealing with uh, the same issue of uh, lakes being uh, polluted uh, because of industry. You mentioned you ended up focusing on Carl Stokes, uh, who was the mayor of Cleveland at the time. His hands uh, pretty much uh, tied in dealing with this pollution. There was no federal help before then. Right. Uh, there are many ways in which Carl Stokes felt powerless to solve uh, the problem of the pollution on, on the Cuyahoga, but lots of other problems, too, including air pollution, which was many people probably would have said was the worst environmental problem in Cleveland at the time, um, mostly from the steel mills, but from lots of other sources as well. Yeah, he, um, he took reporters on a, uh, what my brother and I called uh, the pollution tour the day after the fire to try and um, kind of uh, encourage more coverage of the, of the fire itself and also about uh, the environmental crisis, too, and the way it affected Cleveland. He pointed out that uh, the city of Cleveland couldn't convince suburban districts, for example, suburban um, communities, to tie into sewage treatment plants. So a lot of the, the sewage from the suburbs just uh, upstream from 
Cleveland just flowed into the river, and, and that could affect, uh, obviously, water quality and also oil slicks, uh, that he, in fact, did not have the authority to regulate uh, what it was that industry inside or outside of Cleveland put into the river. That was up to the state of Ohio, um, which issued uh, permits. They had a pro-growth attitude, and, and mostly just they just um, went along with industry's sense that they could only invest so much money in water pollution control technology. Um, so he was hamstrung in a couple of different ways, um, and and he w- he became an advocate for um, federalizing regulation of water pollution and and issuing permits or or gradually restricting permits on on what can be dumped into waterways. Uh, I, I had talked about um, this being seen as a catalyst for the Clean Water Act, but um, that's not even accurate considering that the movement, uh, the environmental movement, was really uh, picking up steam, uh, so to speak, and growing. But this was symbolic, uh, even though the, the even the picture was uh, inaccurate uh, mm-hmm. to the specific fire. Mm-hmm. That's really what got um, the federal lawmakers uh, to pass uh, the Clean Water Act, including a uh, relation to Stokes? Yeah, I think he, he played a, a part in it. Um, but I will say I think that mayors around the country who are concerned about their own waterways played a part in it, too. The Hudson River was terribly polluted. The Potomac River was terribly polluted at the time. So there were so many different waterways that were troubled. Um, I think had the Cuyahoga River not caught fire in 69, we would have gotten the Clean Water Act anyway. Um, I don't think it's 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 really uh, causal here. Um but the, what it does is it allows people to tell this kind of straightforward story about how a river caught fire. People suddenly awakened to the terrible pollution in the United States, and then uh, legislators uh, got busy and passed what became a, a very effective law. Um, you know, I think there's there are aspects to that story that are true, um, but uh, mostly it, what it does is it erases a lot of work that had gone into getting people ready for the idea that the federal government should be the ultimate um, uh, you know, sovereignty as far as uh, controlling uh, regulation of uh, the environment, both air and water pollution, um, and that that was a very that's a very long story. As your introduction noted, it goes back to the uh, very late 40s and 1950s, where um, sometimes legislators, sometimes scientists, sometimes uh, citizen activists were demanding for better regulation and and not getting the results that they needed at the local or state level, and then. Uh, gradually making demands on the federal government. David, I mentioned to our listeners you're a historian. When we think about uh, the story uh, that was happening in Cleveland back in 69, and, and what is the relevance of, of uh, looking at this chapter again when uh, today uh, the the cause for change uh, focused on climate change, but mm-hmm. still a lot of doubters of the science that exists that tells us that we're in big trouble? Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why this this story gained so much attention. In fact, it gains more and more attention, of course, um, through the years. It's amazing. If you if you look through newspapers, um, there are probably as many references to the Cuyahoga River fire in the 1990s as there were in the 1980s and the 1970s. Um, and, of course, now we're at the 50th anniversary of the Cuyahoga fire, so there are lots and lots of references to it. And I think that it becomes a um, just kind of a, an object lesson. The, the Cuyahoga River is much, much cleaner now. Uh, It is, once again, a a recreational waterway uh, in the city of Cleveland. It still performs some industrial duty. They still bring ore boats up the Cuyahoga River to the steel mills, which are operating once again after a period of hiatus. Um, 
so it is, um, I think the Cuyahoga has become a much more complete, usable river, and it's uh, emblematic of Cleveland's um, revival. So I think it's a real success story for the Clean Water Act, and it has been held up as such um, for um, in the city of Cleveland to, to you know, let people know that, that in fact this, the regulation that came from this fire uh, in this mythology um, has actually been effective. Oh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, meanwhile, uh, focus on um, environmental changes. But Carl Stokes, as mayor of Cleveland, was also dealing with a lot of other issues in his city. Uh, today, we know that you can't just uh, deal with uh, one issue. Many of them are intertwined, mm-hmm. such as social issues. Uh, when we look at Flint, Michigan, and the uh, the power to fix infrastructure and the fact that uh, certain communities are plagued with dealing with pollution versus others. Yes. Uh, Stokes was... Um well ahead of his time in recognizing the ways in which the urban and environmental crises overlapped and reinforced each other, that um, some of the problems of Cleveland, the fact that um, so many middle-class residents had fled in the 50s and, and 60s and were continuing to do so, in fact, in increasing numbers in the 1970s, yeah, part of that had to do with the fact that uh, it was a terribly polluted environment and suburbs offered uh, much more attractive uh, places to live and, and send your kids to school. Um, he recognized that, that Cleveland was not going to be able to solve its problems related to poverty and joblessness uh, if it couldn't uh, also improve the environment, make it a, a more livable community. Um, his major concern, I think, as, as mayor, was really housing. Um, he knew that particularly the African-American population, which was rather concentrated in the neighborhoods that were closest to downtown, um, were, were living in substandard housing. He himself had grown up in public housing and was a, uh, a strong supporter of um, government intervention to make certain that everybody had at least uh, the bare minimums as far as housing is concerned. David Stradling, again, is professor of history at University of Cincinnati, also co-author of Where the River Burned, Carl Stokes and the Struggle to Save Cleveland. Uh, David, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to Lydia Brown on the phones. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also download our podcast anytime. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>